was praying, asking the Lord specifically what He would have me share today. He directed me to this passage of Scripture we're going to read here in just a moment. And when I first started reading it, I thought, how unlikely of a passage of Scripture for the Lord to direct me to uh, for this last service in this building before we close one chapter of ministry and, uh, and begin a new chapter of ministry. And But after I read the passage and just allowed the Lord time to speak to me, He began to speak very clearly. I have a word today that I want to share with you that I know the Lord has given me specifically for this day. If you'll stand with me all over the room, we're going to read six verses of Scripture out of the book of Acts. Chapter 9, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. If you don't have your Bibles, Brother Lauren has got it on the screen for you. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, reading from the New King James Version. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, and the way being the way of Jesus, if he found any who were of the way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, being Saul, Trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I want to pause right there and begin preaching a message to you. The Lord has simply given to me, titled, Eight Words That Could Change Everything. Eight Words That Could Change Everything. If you will, pray with me and for me. Father, we thank you for all that's taken place here today. We thank you for all that's taken place here over the last eight years. But God, we come to you one more time, one last time in this building. And we ask you that you would remove every hindrance and every distraction from amongst us for the next 30 minutes. That God, you would clear our minds so that we could focus on you and what your word is speaking to us today. And I pray, Lord, that you would move me out of the way. Decrease me until I am nothing, that your Holy Spirit might be increased within me. God, anoint my lips, these lips of clay, to speak your word, not the enticing words of men's wisdom, but your word, and let it come forth today in the power and the demonstration of your spirit. Anoint every ear to hear and every heart to receive what you would speak to us today. And we give you the glory, the honor, and the praise for it all. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. In the book of Acts, we read of Saul. Saul was a man who had a definitive objective in his life. See, Saul thought that he understood what truth was. He thought he knew what was right and what he was doing was right. And so he set out to persecute. He was an unbeliever. He set out to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. 
Now you may say, how on earth could he do that? You have to imagine he was living in a time where Christianity was brand new and he did not believe what was being told to him or what the disciples of Jesus were establishing and he he thought he was doing what was right. This book tells us every man's ways are right in his own eyes. And Paul thought he was, Saul thought he was doing what was right so he set out to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. But yet, as he was on the road to Damascus one day, he had an encounter. Say encounter. And when he had this encounter, a blinding light from heaven suddenly caused him to be thrown to the ground. And the scripture tells us that he was blind for three days. Now that's a blinding light. He was blind for three days. And everything that Saul thought he was, everything that Saul was attempting to do, Every purpose that Saul thought he had in life suddenly came to an end. Now, for some of you seated here today, it may be that same way for you. Perhaps maybe you thought what your life was going to be, but whether you gradually, if if y'all won't help me preach Siri will, whether you gradually or suddenly, like Saul, who as we know became the Apostle Paul later on, Maybe you feel like in your life you have come to an end. You can no longer see your way forward. Can I tell you this morning that the church is the best place people who feel like they're at the end of their rope, people who feel like they cannot see their way forward, people who feel like they've done all the wrong that they could possibly do, the church is the best place for them. Thank you. See, we, we've got it wrong in the church world today, and somebody might get offended when I say this, but I'm going to say it particularly in the holiness and the Pentecostal movements. Many times we feel like we need to clean the fish before we catch them. God did not call you nor me to clean the fish. He just said, cast your net on the other side of the ship. And whatever you catch, reel it in. And when you reel it in, God will clean the fish. Are you with me this morning? See, the the place where we, we make it to where sometimes people feel like if they don't live a certain way, if they don't act a certain way, if they don't dress a certain way, uh, if, if, if all of these things are not the way that we think they should be, then we make them feel as if church is not the place for them. But I want to tell you, the church was not established to be a museum for the saints. The church was established to be a hospital for the sinners. And we need to make sure that we welcome them in. We need to make sure that the church is always full of people who feel like they're at the end of their rope. The church is always full of people who feel like they can't see their way forward. And Paul was trembling and astonished, and he had an encounter with God. Now, the first thing that Paul prayed in response was a prayer that I believe everybody who wants a living relationship with the Lord must pray. I said, must pray. Also, I believe it's a prayer that everybody who has an authentic encounter with the Lord, God, everybody who has an authentic encounter with God will pray. I believe we will pray this prayer. And he spoke eight words that changed everything. And it didn't just change everything for Saul. 
it changed everything for literally multiplied millions of people around the globe. And for those today who may have had their first real encounter with Jesus in this building, or maybe those of us today who have met in this building for the last eight years, and we have personally witnessed many who have had an encounter with Jesus right here. It does not matter which end of that spectrum we come from this morning. These same eight words have the power to completely change our lives personally and also completely change the trajectory of our ministries and this church. I want you to say this with me. They're going to put it on the screen this morning. Say this with me. Lord, what do you want me to do? Say it again. Lord, what do you want me to do? Now say it like you mean it. Lord, what do you want me to do? Now listen, I want you to realize this morning that that prayer starts with Lord. And thank you, Hunter. I knew I could count on you. Hunter's my man. The first word of this prayer was simply Lord. I want you to look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 46 with me. Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of the day, and here's what he said. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things I say? Uh-huh. See, we live in a day and a time and in the church world where everybody wants a Savior. Nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody wants a Savior. Everybody wants to be rescued from hell. But not many people want a Lord. Hello. Not many people want to make him Lord. What are you, what are you saying, Pastor Sean? I'm saying when, when Paul called him Lord, he meant it. It was a confession that he was no longer in charge. There was a new boss in his life. Paul understood that he was called to lay down his plans and everything he thought his life was going to amount to. And I believe that that is part of the reason many Christians, listen to me this morning, in this generation are so powerless. And they are. It's because they have never truly come to that place of surrender where they could call Him Lord. Where they would say, God, You are Lord of my life now. Your word is supreme. Your thoughts are above my thoughts. Your ways are above my ways. Listen to me. If your word says it's wrong, it's wrong. Even uh, though I might think it's right, even though I'd like for it to be right, even though some people try to make it right, if your word says it's wrong, it's wrong. And I'm not going to be among those who call you Lord, Lord, but they do not do the things which your word says. I yield to you the rights to my life. You are my Lord. What is a Lord? Merriam-Webster defines the word Lord as this. Listen, it's one having authority and power over others. A ruler by hereditary right or preeminence to whom service and obedience are due. Let me read that again. Lord is one having authority and power over others. A ruler by hereditary right or preeminence, which is the Lord is preeminent, to whom service and obedience are due. I want you 
to notice that the Apostle Paul recognized that he was no longer the boss of him. Right? I present to you that in this church age that we find ourselves living in, we would do ourselves well to recognize we are no longer the boss of us. Now, when Evan, Angie's little brother, was a small child, I love him better than anything, but from the time he was this high, he's always been unruly. Always. And he had this little saying that he would say, you're not the boss of me. When he was like three and four years old, you're not the boss of me. I'll never forget, I don't even know that if Rick and Nita know this, but it's, it's living proof now that it certainly didn't hurt him. And this many years later, they ain't going to do nothing to me about it. But anyway, I was, I was watching him one day. We were in our new house we had built over on Dorothy Road, the first house that we built, little small house. And I remember we had, uh, how many remembers home interior? Right? We're not going to have open confession if you still have it all over your walls and all that. We're not going there. But anyway, home interior. I remember we built our first house. We were very budget-minded. We were very strapped. We were very young. And Angie had wanted this home interior picture for the wall, and it cost me $69.99. Can I get a witness in the room this morning? To me, that was eating out the movies and a trip to play putt-putt all in one. So it cost me a lot of money to hang that picture on the wall, and I was watching Evan, who said, you're not the boss of me. And he had a Hot Wheel, and because I was trying to be the boss of him, he got mad at me, and he threw that Hot Wheel, and he hit that picture, and he shattered that glass. And I busted his posterior end. I lit up his world. I said, now who's not the boss of you, big boy? And really it wasn't so much because I was trying to teach him right. It was because it was $69.99 of my hard-earned money. Can I tell you today, though, the children of God act the same way. Mm-hmm. Oh, you was with me till I got right there. I'm about to lose you right now. When we get something preached to us out of the Word of God that doesn't tickle our ears, well... Now just let that go in one ear and out the other. And internally you're saying he's not the boss of me. No, I'm not the boss of you. But this word is the boss of you. Jesus Christ is the boss of you. If he's your Lord, if he said it's wrong, it's wrong. And you can't make it right no matter how hard you try. If he's your Lord, you've got to recognize and say, God, I'm no longer the boss of me. You're in charge of my life. And so the next words that Paul said in this prayer were, what do you want me. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Now this implies that God not only had the right to his life, but he had a divine purpose for his life. Folks, let me tell you something this morning. The will of God is not always pleasant. The will of God is not always pleasant. We often, and we're human, we want to craft up some pleasantry or some pleasant thing in our hearts and in our minds and bring it to God. And say, okay, God, this is your will for my life. Obviously, you're going to agree with me on this, right? Because this is what I want. Yet Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, he said, he went on a little further and he fell down on his face and he prayed. And he said, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, never 
nevertheless, not as I would, but as you would. Listen, I want you to remember something this morning. God does not want our plans. Let me say that again. God does not want our plans. God is not dependent upon our strength or our abilities. If you could imagine with me this morning this formerly enraged man called Saul who was literally hauling Christians out of their homes and torturing them to the point of blaspheming God just to get out of the pain that he was putting them in. And when Stephen, consider Stephen, who was a precious young man, a servant of God, who was martyred. Did you know that Paul was there as Saul? He was there holding the coats of the witnesses, consenting to the death of young Stephen. My goodness, it doesn't get much more evil than that. And no doubt, Saul was a man full of ideas. Uh, he, his whole life had been governed by his own zealous agenda. And when I read those words in the commentary, his whole life had been governed by his own zealous agenda. I thought, boy, how easy it is for you and I, and particularly those of us in ministry, to allow our entire lives to be governed by our own zealous agenda. God does not need our agenda. God does not need our plans. God does not need our strength. But what God does need is for us to say, Lord, what do you want? God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want for my life? What is the purpose for my life? And we got to understand that the divine purpose of God for our life is far above, far beyond our thinking. He says in Jeremiah, and I didn't put it on the screen because most of you can quote it word for word. I'm, I'm quoting it from uh, the New International Version. But he said, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. In other words, he's saying, I'm thinking thoughts about you that you have not even considered yet about yourself. I'm able to do more for you and through your life than you can even ask or think. Because listen, in the natural, we are confined in our minds to our past experiences. Let me say that again. We're confined in our minds to our past experiences. That's why we get it wrong so many times we get, when all we know is our past experiences and we get hung up on certain things, that's where we get sometimes our plans and tradition of men and things of that nature that don't work nearly as well as the direction of God. And we base it off of our past experiences by the depths of our struggles and by the parameters of what other people have said about us. Are you with me? What other people might have said about us, but the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, who comes to live inside of you when you yield your life to the Lord, can I tell you, He is not confined by those things. He's not confined by what other people say. He's the God of the universe, and He can do things that you would never even imagine. See, I don't know, most of you wasn't here yesterday, but you might have seen the pictures online. I can't help but mention it this morning. See, I remember when there was a young lady walked in here several years ago who looked like a young man. I remember when she entered the church, and I most people thought, we even had a greeter tell 
somebody, that's a nice looking young boy you got with you this morning. And I thought, oh my goodness, because it wasn't a young boy. I remember when she walked into this building, and I remember the first time that she prayed at this altar. She was bound by lesbianism. She was bound by drugs, and she was bound by alcohol. I remember that. And when she got up from this altar, things began to change in her life. But I remember when people from Indiana, where she used to live in Louisville and that area, began to run her down. I remember counseling with her when she would say to me things they said to her. They would say, who are you fooling? This ain't going to last no time. You're not going to be any different. You're still going to be addicted. You might you might stop uh, seeing women and girls, but you're always going to have that desire all your life. And I remember counseling with her through that, but I'm telling you, God is good and God is real and God can save. God can deliver and God can set free. And yesterday I stood on this platform and I, I performed a ceremony where she married another young man who is a believer and they're madly in love and want to serve God together. What are you saying? I'm saying the Holy Ghost is not nothing. But if you'll surrender your heart and your life to God, He'll do the unimaginable in your life. We see in the Bible, the last two words of Paul's prayer were to do. Did you notice that? Lord, what do you want me to do? That made the full statement. Now, to do. How many has got a to-do list? How many have... How many are like me? This is open confession, which the book says is good for the soul. How many have things on your to-do list for today and you lay down tonight and you still ain't touched them? Right? That's why they're to-do, right? Didn't happen today. They're still to-do. They're to be done. I'm making that point because I want you to understand something. In other words... If he's the Lord of my life with a divine purpose for my life, then that means his plan requires my active participation. That means his plan requires my active participation. God starts to open doors and we're simply just required to walk through those doors. I want you to remember that Jesus said what he said to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. He said, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and nobody can shut it. For you have a little strength, and you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Can I tell you that the open door is set there by God? And all he requires now is our active cooperation. Our willingness to go where we've never gone. To do what we cannot do without him. To speak though we do not know what's going to come out of our mouth sometimes. And to be put in uncomfortable places. How many remembers at the beginning of this year we talked a little bit about Uncomfortable Church? You remember that? I took the staff on a retreat. Uh, they read a book about Uncomfortable Church. We came back and I preached a series of messages on Uncomfortable Church. Can I tell you that sometimes it's got to get uncomfortable? Sometimes it's got to get uncomfortable. I want you to consider Paul going from this enraged persecutor of the church to suddenly finding himself in the midst of the followers of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. The man who murdered, beat, killed them and all that. How would you feel this morning if a, if a known murderer of Christians, let's just say this, let's say this morning that somebody locally was a known murderer and, and, and uh, persecutor of the Christian faith, maybe they were uh, uh, of Islamic faith, 
and you knew that and everybody knew that and the law was looking for them, but they walked in and sat down beside you at church, how would you feel? I would imagine it'd get a little bit uncomfortable, right? I want you to think about that. That's actually the way it was for Paul. Paul, all of a sudden, who had persecuted and killed Christians, found himself in the body of Christ looking for acceptance. Are you with me? Looking for acceptance. Trying to convince the disciples that he was no longer against them. See, I I feel like here's another way that we've got it wrong in the church today. There's There's a thing in our justice system that's called innocent until proven guilty, right? Why is it that the church, who's supposed to be a people of grace, are you with me this morning? Why is it that the church, who are supposed to be people of mercy and grace, we tend to make people who are known sinners guilty until they prove themselves innocent? Can I tell you this morning? God didn't call a single one of us to do that. God called us to extend mercy and grace. They don't have to prove themselves to you or me or nobody else. And if we'll provide an environment in which they can come in and find acceptance, in which they can come in and find love. Pastor Sean, will you make it comfortable for them? Absolutely not. Will you preach the Word of God? Absolutely I will. But if we can create an environment where they come in and they don't feel like that they are guilty until they prove themselves innocent, I tell you what you'll find. You'll find them piling in the altars after messages like this saying, if he can live it, I can live it. If she can do it, I can do it. If they'll love me, God will love me. And then God will make the change in their life. But... It starts with us. It starts with us. And that's where Paul found himself. It must have been incredibly uncomfortable for him. Yet we know from that initial prayer that God did things through the life of the Apostle Paul that you and I are still talking about and preaching about thousands of years later. When Paul prayed, Lord, what do you want me to do? We might expect God to have replied, Paul, now think about this, this same man that I told you all that he did. Paul, I want you to get up and start writing the Scriptures. I mean, really? I mean, we we make them live right for two years before we ever let them behind the pulpit and preach the word. Are you with me this morning? But Paul wrote the majority of this New Testament. But we might think that God immediately said, I want you to get up and start writing the scriptures. I want you to go out and start planting churches. You've got to have rapport with people before you plant a church. I've told a lot of young ministers and ministers that I work with going through the program and people here that have become credentialed, I've told them, unless you have rapport with people, you don't have a ministry. I had somebody look at me one time and say, I don't care what people think. And I said, then you don't care if you ever have a ministry. Because unless you have rapport with people, it doesn't matter what kind of truth you're preaching if ain't nobody coming to hear it. Right? you got to care what people think. So, We know that God didn't say to Paul right then, go out and start planting some churches because that's not the way it works. But see, in our minds, we always want the whole package. We want to see the full. Is anybody else, I'm going to be open and transparent this morning, confession again. Anybody else, when you're wanting to see the plan of God, you just want everything like, just give give me a vision or a dream. Just lay it all out. Let me see everything the way it's going to be. Anybody else like that? And then God just gives you just a little nugget. It's like move from this point to the next. You're like, that's not what I wanted. 
It's not what I asked for. We want the full answer. So I want you to notice what God's first answer to Paul simply was. Notice this if they'll put verse 6 back on the screen for me. Here's what he said. Then the Lord said, here's what he said. Arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. That was it. That simple. Get up, go to the city, and then you'll get instructions on what you need to do. That's all that God told him. Although we want the entire pathway laid out before us, God says to us, no, just take the first step. Just do the first thing. God's not going to lay it all out before us, folks, because he knows we wouldn't be able to handle it. Listen to me this morning. If within the first few weeks of my salvation, if the Lord had told me everything that he had planned for my life, I would have fell out and it would not have been in the Spirit. Because there was a lot going on in my life at the time. And this is one part, and I got emotional in the 845 service, and I'm going to try not to get too emotional now, but this is one part of my story that I just don't share a whole lot. But there was a lot going on in my life, and I was a very wounded child from a very broken home at the age of nine years old. And my dad had passed away. But my home was already broken. See, if some of you wonder why sometimes I am so adamant about my stance on certain things, uh, one of those things is maybe you've not been where I have been and seen what alcoholism will do to a family. Maybe you haven't lived there. I was eight years old and seven years old and six years old, and I remember my daddy getting drunk. And I remember him physically abusing my God-fearing mama. At the age of five and six, he left for the first time at five, and then he came back home. And from five till I turned six, all the way up till he died when I was nine years old, from that time I remember the back and forth and the drinking and the fighting and the abuse. I was a wounded, disturbed child from a broken home. I remember... And this is how bad it was. And if you've got children, I, I, you might want to cover their ears if they're not in kids' church. But I remember at the age of seven or eight, I heard him physically abusing my mama in the bedroom in the middle of the night because he went to bed drunk. And so he got up in the middle of the night beating on her. And I could hear her hitting against the wall, and I didn't know what was happening. And I went and I opened their bedroom door, and I peeked in, and my daddy was there and had my mama with her feet raised off the floor back up against the wall, strangling her at the neck. And so I didn't know anything else to do, but I went and I grabbed a dresser drawer, and I emptied it. And at seven or eight years old, I took that dresser drawer, and I flung it against him. And it caught, it gashed his leg on the side. And then I went running back to my bedroom and shut my door and barricaded it and prayed to God to keep us safe. I remember what that was like. And so I was a very broken, disturbed, uh, wounded child from a very broken childhood. And if the Lord had told me everything He was going to do through me at the time, see, I wasn't yet free from the fear that I lived in. I was not yet free from those images that were still in my mind even after He had passed away. I was intimidated by crowds. I could not have spoke publicly if 
if you had paid me good money at the age of nine, I could not play a single instrument. I could not teach vocal harmonies to myself, let alone anybody else. So if God had laid everything out for me that morning at nine years old when I walked down the aisle and knelt at the altar in that Baptist church on Moore Hill, if God had laid everything out for me that he was going to do in my life that morning, it would have overwhelmed me. It would have seemed like an absolute impossibility. But oh God, in his gentleness, in his goodness, in his infinite mercy and grace, God just saved me and all he asked me to do was just love him. Then all he asked me to do was start serving him. Then all he asked me to do was keep following him. And before I knew it, I found myself singing harmonies with that lady sitting right back there in the choir when I was about 10 years old in the Baptist church. Then when I was a teenager, I found myself teaching vocal harmonies. I sat down at a piano and God gifted me the ability to play that piano. I later found myself leading worship ministries. And then I went through what I went through before I surrendered to the call to preach on my life. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying be simple with your response to God and God will be simple with you. But if you'll follow that simple command, just love me, just follow me, just serve me, then God will unfold His plan all over your life. And don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't regard that initial answer to your prayer as nothing. See, a lot of you, I would say if I, if I were to challenge you, just go pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'd have probably about 60 or 70% of you come back to me and say, well, he didn't say nothing to me. I don't guess he wants me to do anything. But he will be speaking to you if you'll listen. It may be much simpler than what you're trying to hear him say. Don't disregard that initial answer to your prayer is nothing. Maybe God might just tell you, get up and open your Bible and begin to read it. Because that's how he wants to talk to you. Maybe he'll tell you to go to the pantry and pour that bottle of liquor down the sink. Hello. Maybe he'll tell you to go to the bathroom and get those drugs and flush them down the toilet. Are you with me this morning? Maybe he'll tell you to get in the Word and get something to speak to the heart of your wayward son or your wayward daughter or your lost neighbor. And maybe whether they scorn you or whether they curse at you or whether they scoff you, just go through that first door by faith. Do you hear me this morning? See, I remember how this church was birthed. I remember as I laid on my face in the floor of our bonus room of the house we used to live in, soaking the carpet in my tears, when God told me specifically to plant this church. Now folks, we did not have a place to meet for worship. We did not have one single certainty of finances. We did not know who God would send for us to shepherd and pastor. Nor did we know who He would send to help us accomplish this vision that you're a part of today. But after I simply said, Okay, Lord, if this is really what you want me to do. After I cried till I couldn't cry no more with my face in the floor. Okay, Lord, if this is really what you want me to do, want us to do, then we'll do it. And when I look back on our story, it simply amazes me. When I said yes to God and got up from that floor, I, I testify to you this morning, things began to fall right into place, one thing after another, and they've never stopped falling into place since then. We got the word out that we were going to plan a church and we were going to meet to discuss it. 
at the Hampton Inn on Sunday, July the 7th, 2013 at 6 p.m., I reserved the Hampton Inn meeting room and put it on my personal credit card. And we didn't know who was going to show up. But that Sunday night, there were 42 people who showed up and committed to this vision. And then with, within less than one week's time, I want you to hear this this morning, the Corbin City manager called me and said, you can meet in the Civic Center on Sundays for a very nominal, and I tell you, it was a next to nothing fee. So on Saturday, six days later, July the 13th, 2013, several of those 42 people who went to that meeting room met at the Civic Center to set out chairs and to set up a, a temporary sound system and get ready to have church. And on Sunday, July the 14th, we had our first worship service which 71 people attended glory be to God and then within just a couple months of that time the school board got word of it and they called me because they were managing the Corbin Area Technology Center and actually one of the, the members of the center talked to Karen and a member of the school board called me and said that we could have that building behind Applebee's for services on the weekends get this for the same fee that we were paying for the Civic Center and their normal rental fee was more than 10 times that. Are you with me this morning? So we moved there. And then in the meantime, in less than one month from the day I got up out of that floor with tears on my face, less than one month from launching this church, the owners of this building that you're sitting in this morning contacted me and said, if you want to meet there for church, we'll fund the renovations of the building. We'll build it to suit you, and then we'll lease it to you for services. We walked into this building in August. I want you to look at what it looked like. This is what it looked like when we walked in here of August 2013. If you'll put that picture on the screen, thank you. This is exactly this room you're sitting in, what it looked like in August 2013. It was a disaster. But by December of that same year, less than six months from the time that we planted this church, we held our first service in this newly renovated building that you're sitting in today. Folks, I'm telling you, only God can do that. I said only God can do that. I'm trying to tell you something this morning. And I'm about done. When you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And when God responds with one simple instruction, and when you say, yes, Lord, I'll do it, then God will begin to cause things to fall into place. But you've got to ask Him first. Did you hear me? You've got to ask Him first. Then after you ask Him, you've got to be willing to do what He tells you to do. I want to tell you something. I thank God, and I'm almost done. I didn't thank God that I didn't say what I felt inside at the time. Because the very last thing that I wanted to do was plan a church. That's the truth. The very last thing that I wanted to do was plan a church. And as much as I love all y'all, I still resign on Monday sometimes, and you never know about it. It's the very last thing I wanted to do. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I didn't say what I was really feeling inside to what the Lord told me to do. I said, Lord, if that's what you really want us to do, we'll do it. I'm so thankful that those 42 people, most of whom are still with us today, did not say what I'm sure many of them felt at the time. Because, folks, it wasn't easy. If you were there with us, you know the setting up and tearing down week in and week out. Anybody there with us? Uh-huh. It wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. I'm thankful, though, that those 71 people 
who attended that first service did not base their church attendance that Sunday morning on how they were feeling inside. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm trying to tell you and communicate to you this morning that because just a few people said, Lord, what do you want me to do? In the last eight years, we have seen 50 people baptized in the Holy Spirit. 81 people follow the Lord in water baptism. 99 people rededicate their lives to Christ. And 113, 113 people accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Why? Because a handful of people said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm telling you this morning, you might think that you don't have much to offer. You might think you can't do much for the Lord. But if you'll get serious with God and you'll say, Lord, what do you want me to do? If you'll follow those simple instructions He gives you, you'll be a part of a greater vision than what we can even imagine that's going to blow your mind. We stand here today, believe it or not, with more than 360 people who say Freedom Point Church is their home. Now, we don't have 360 in a given Sunday. We're like any other church. The church that says they have 500 in attendance have about 1,000 on the membership row. Can I get a witness? But I'm trying to tell you this morning, if you will simply say, God, what do you want me to do? In Paul's case, after he was told to go into the city, the second answer that came to him was when God sent a man called Ananias. How many remembers Ananias? God sent Ananias to lay his hands on Paul so that he would receive his sight back. And the Lord said to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, He said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. So Ananias obeyed God, and he went to Paul, and he essentially said, God sent me here, and this is what he told me about you. Your ministry is going to be greater than anything you could ever imagine it to be. But it's not too big to God. It's just too big to you. Can I tell you this morning? God is going to use you because you've chosen to obey. That's what Ananias said to Paul. God's going to use you because you've chosen to obey. Now, however, there's a caveat that comes with that. Are you ready? Look at verse 16. For I will show him, Ananias said, how many, talking about Paul, how many things he must Oh, lost everybody right there. Because we want to think it's all rainbows and butterflies, right? But Ananias said, I'm going to show him. The Lord told Ananias, I'm going to show him how many things he's got to suffer for my name's sake. In other words, y'all come to the music today. Your ministry, Paul, is going to be far-reaching. But it's not going to be easy. Freedom Point Church. Our ministry is going to be far-reaching, but it's not going to be easy. And likewise, when, I, when we put this, when we break it down to an individual basis, because at the end of the day, when we say, Lord, what do you want me to do? At the end of the day, I can't make that statement for you. I can't ask that question for you. You can't ask that question for your spouse or your children. Everybody's got to ask that question themselves. When we break it down to an individual basis, you've got to realize there's going to be a hardship ahead sometimes when you choose to respond to the Lord's instructions on your life. 
I believe we're going to go on to have a widespread ministry, but I believe it's going to be costly. And let me say this. For people who say, I don't like it when the church gets too big, are essentially saying, the rest of the world can go to hell. Have you ever thought about that? For folks that say, oh, I don't know. I think we're getting too big. I don't like it when we get three or 400 people in a room together to worship. Really? Why? I'd love to take, I don't know how many, what the population of Corbin is, somewhere around 11,000, but I'd like all 11,000 to be going to heaven with us, wouldn't you? Don't say that. Don't say, I don't like a big church. If you don't like a big church, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? If you think Southeast Christian in Louisville is big with 23,000 people, even if the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, there's going to be 144,000 there. And they're not right, by the way. Don't say that. we got to realize our generation desperately needs the church to begin to walk in what God has ordained for us. So I want to tell you something, family. We are at a crossroads today. Today we stand in this place at the close of one chapter of this ministry. And then two weeks from today, we'll assemble to worship in a different place at the beginning of a new chapter, not only for this ministry, but also a new chapter in each of our individual service to the kingdom. My prayer is that God would give each of us the grace and that we would have the willingness to all say, Lord, what do you want me to do? See, Paul didn't start by saying, Lord, I got a hundred ideas about how to advance your kingdom. The Lord, the Lord spoke to, convicted me on this. Paul didn't start saying, God, I got a hundred ideas how to advance your kingdom. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I got a strategy. We're going to do it. It's all going to work. No, he came and he surrendered to the Lord's plans. God, show me what you want me to do. Listen, if you'll stand with me all over the room. Don't forget that God's plan for your life is so much bigger than even the best plan that you can imagine for yourself. It simply starts with your desire to get up and wait till the Lord speaks to you. And if you follow the leading of His voice, though sometimes it won't be easy, you will impact your known world for Jesus Christ. Did you hear me? You, it'll start in your home. In fact, your ministry could change the trajectory of your entire family. I'm talking to somebody today. It could leave a lasting impact on your workplace, on your community, and beyond. If God can simply find an obedient heart, that'll say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Those eight words right there, those eight words could change, could change everything change the outcome of your life, your ministry, your family, your community, and this church. And I'm not going to make a fancy invitation today. I'm going to say, first of all, if you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, whatever you do, don't leave this building before you invite Him into your heart today. If you'll make your way to this altar right now or in just a moment when we open it, somebody will meet you here to pray. But I want to I wanna encourage everybody else in this room today. I'm not going to make it fancy and I'm not going to try to bribe you and prod you. There's plenty of room up here though. 
I want to encourage everybody that will. They're going to sing, and I want you. It's an individual thing. I told you I can't ask it for you. I want you to find a place to pray today and say, Lord, what do you want me to do for your kingdom?